Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, a complimentary resource for those on the road to recovery. I'm Mickey Trescott, a nutritional therapy practitioner living well with autoimmune disease in Oregon. I've got both Hashimoto's and celiac disease. And I'm Angie Alt, a certified health coach and nutritional therapy consultant, also living well with autoimmune disease in Maryland. I have endometriosis, lichen sclerosis, and celiac disease. After recovering our health by combining the best of conventional medicine with effective and natural dietary and lifestyle interventions, Mickey and I started blogging at autoimmune-paleo.com, where our collective mission is seeking wellness and building community. This podcast is sponsored by the Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, our co-authored guide to living well with chronic illness. We saw the need for a comprehensive resource that goes beyond nutrition to connect savvy patients just like you to the resources they need to achieve vibrant health. Through the use of self-assessments, checklists, handy guides, and templates, you get to experience the joy of discovery, finding out which areas to prioritize on your healing journey. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. A quick disclaimer, the content in this podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome back to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. This is episode three, part two. Uh, We are talking about the informed step today. Hey, Mickey, how's it going? Awesome. How are you? I'm good. Are you ready to talk to our old pal? Super, super ready. She's my favorite person. So how could I be not? I know. So you guys, today we have everybody's favorite, Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, aka the Paleo Mom. She almost doesn't need an introduction, but for anyone who doesn't know her and check yourself, you may be under a rock. She is the blogger behind the award-winning blog, thepaleomom.com, co-host of the top-rated syndicated The Paleo View podcast, and the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Approach and The Paleo Approach Cookbook. Sarah's doctorate degree is in the field of medical biophysics, which makes her uniquely suited to researching and creating the autoimmune protocol, which turned my and Mickey's life around and eventually led us to write our book. Sarah, thank you for taking the time to share with us on the topic of diet and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's like girls chat time. It, it is always with you, Sarah. We, we, love, we love to hang out with you. And, uh, you know, we're so grateful for your work and your friendship. It's really awesome to have you here. Thank you. Right back at you, girls. Yeah. <laughs> so getting right in here uh, before we get chatty, really informing is about just learning. And, you know, the first most obvious question is what is autoimmune disease in a nutshell and what organs can it affect? So to back up from what autoimmune disease is, we need to talk about the immune system. And most people have a sort of surface understanding of what the immune system is. We think about the immune system protecting us when we have a cold or a flu. We think about the immune system maybe, you know, helping out when we, you know, have a bruise or we cut ourselves, right? So those are our jobs that are in the immune system's wheelhouse, right? Protecting us from foreign invaders is really how we can boil it down. And so the immune system is actually fantastically complex. There are dozens of different cell types and then hundreds of different chemical mediators that are coordinating this really intricate dance between the different aspects of the immune system to protect us. Our immune system, first and foremost, has to be able to recognize something that's not supposed to be there. 
So it's supposed to recognize that virus or that bacteria or that parasite or that dirt or that sliver or that gaping wound that's not supposed to be there, right? It's recognizing that the outside of the body is directly contacting something that it's not supposed to, right? And so the immune system has all of these ways of detecting what is a foreign invader. And then it has these abilities to attack. Actually, it can attack in very different ways depending on what it senses is out there. So how the immune system will respond to a virus is a little bit different than how it will respond to a bacteria or how it will respond to a sliver. Then the immune system needs a way of turning itself off. So it has this way of attacking and multiple ways of attacking this foreign invader it detects. And then it has to know when the job is done and it's time to go back into to sentry mode. And we're just going to, you know, now we're just going to patrol for the next thing. And so what happens in autoimmune disease is actually a breakdown in two different parts of this whole process. So the first thing that happens is a breakdown in the ability to detect a foreign invader and differentiate that foreign invader from ourselves. And so what happens in autoimmune disease is the immune system gets confused and it thinks that some part of our body is actually gets the same status as a, as a virus or a bacteria. So, for example, in autoimmune thyroid disease like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, the immune system has mistakenly identified some protein in the thyroid as being a, a horrible thing that should not be here and it's going to attack. The next thing that breaks down is this regulation, this turning the job off, this like restraining the system and keeping everything in control and deciding the job's done and it's time to go back into sentry mode. So you have these two different parts of you know the immune system doing its job that aren't working well in autoimmune disease. And what differentiates one autoimmune disease from another is just which protein in the body and what cell and what tissue that's in talking about rheumatoid arthritis, the immune system has identified joint tissues as a problem. If you're talking about psoriasis, the immune system has identified skin cells as a problem. And that's the difference is basically that first accident. But then you've got this ramped up response to attack and this lack of ability to restrain the system and rein everything in. And Sarah, how many autoimmune diseases are there? It's kind of hard to put an exact number on it. It's approximately 140. So there's about 100 autoimmune diseases that are absolutely 100% confirmed autoimmune. We know what the antibodies are. We know what's being attacked. There's about another 40 where we're pretty sure they're autoimmune. Everything off, it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck. And then there's this weird collection of conditions that are also frequently comorbid with autoimmune disease, which means we see them at the same time in the same people. So for example, fibromyalgia. We see an autoimmune disease frequently. Fibromyalgia may itself be an autoimmune disease or it may not, and we just don't know. So we kind of say, well, it's about 140 different diseases. Um, many of them are very common, you know, affecting a, a percent or 2% of people. The estimates of how many people are affected is something like upwards of 20% of us have at least one autoimmune condition. Um, and when you look at, oh, well, how does that translate to the general population? When we're talking like 50 to 60 million Americans having an autoimmune disease. And most of us, I don't think, know it. The first autoimmune disease that I had that was diagnosed was a skin condition called lichen planus. And I saw six different doctors in five different cities over the next decade or so. And not one of them ever used the word autoimmune, ever. 
they just said, oh, yeah, you've got that. Here's some more steroids. It took me deciding that it was time to really learn more about this and delving into the scientific literature and really taking the initiative to inform myself and fortunately have this you know, medical research background to use in order to do that, that I was able to suddenly make that connection of, oh, this condition is autoimmune. And by the way, so is psoriasis, which I've been diagnosed with. And so is rheumatoid arthritis, which I've been diagnosed with and eventually diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And how many more autoimmune diseases can I add to this list that I have? But it really took informing myself to even be able to know this vital piece of information about how my body was uh, not working properly. Right. So important. You know, Sarah, I kind of share um, a sister disease of lichen planus with you. I have lichen sclerosis and it was also my... I think you have the ugly stepsister. I'm just saying. I do. I do have the ugly stepsister. You're totally right. And it was was my my first diagnosis as well. And I had the same experience as you. My doctor never said, oh, by the way, this is an autoimmune disease and be on the lookout that your body might start attacking itself in other ways. You know, nobody said that to me. It was my own initiative to learn that to understand. Even more frustrating, and I think this applies to both of us, is those conditions are secondary autoimmune diseases. They're right. almost certainly not the first one that we had or right. the, the one that's really the center of the dysfunction. For me, that's Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which judging by symptoms, I probably have had since I was seven and took three decades before I could get a confirmed diagnosis, despite having low thyroid function show up on uh, blood tests throughout my 20s and have doctors go, oh, your thyroid's a bit low. We should watch that. And nobody ever watched it. Nobody ever did a more detailed analysis of what was going on. So obviously, this whole this whole episode is about informing ourselves. And we can mm-hmm. see how important it is, obviously, to be informed. But, you know, you also mentioned that like 50 to 60 million of us are dealing with this. Who is the most at risk for developing an autoimmune disease? So women get autoimmune disease about 50% more frequently than uh, men. So about two thirds to three quarters of autoimmune sufferers are women. That probably has to do with the connection between female sex hormones and immune function. And you're more at risk if there's autoimmune disease in your family. So if we ask the question of, well, what causes this breakdown of the immune system that is autoimmune disease? There's a whole pile of inputs into how the immune system is working, and one of those inputs is genetics. And with autoimmune disease, it's not just one gene, so it's not a genetic disorder the way sickle cell anemia is, for example. Instead, we have this collection of genes that increase the probability or our susceptibility to autoimmune disease. So if you have a lot of autoimmune disease in your family, That's not a life sentence that doesn't doom you to getting autoimmune disease, but it does make it more likely that you have an immune system that's going to not do what it's supposed to at some point in your life. Sarah, I know you and Angie talked a little bit about this a second ago, but I think um, it could use a little clarification. Talk to us about the risk for developing additional autoimmune diseases for those who are already diagnosed with one, because this is a really common and prevalent thing. So they say, with a capital T for they, It's like an idiom almost, basically, that once you've developed one autoimmune disease, you will develop another one on average every decade. And what this really has to do with is the fact that once the immune system has made this accident of it can attack itself and hasn't figured out that that happened, hasn't been able to correct that, it's lost the ability to regulate itself, then the only thing missing to develop another autoimmune disease is for that accident to happen again to a different protein. 
And so that accident is called autoantibody formation. So what it is, is certain cells in our immune system are responsible for specifically recognizing invaders. So it's why when you get a flu virus, you never ever get that same flu. Again, you might get a a related flu and it might feel the same, but it's actually not that same virus. Our bodies have a way of identifying that virus and then remembering it so that if we're exposed again, we can ramp up a response before the virus is replicated to the point where it's symptomatic. So we're, we're constantly fighting off things that we've been exposed to before. And it's why we only get chickenpox once in our lives, for example. And so what happens is by accident, an antibody will be produced by one of these cells that targets one of our tissues. And that accident happens in everybody. It's the laws of nature and probability that that's an accident that's going to happen. But the immune system has these fail-safe mechanisms for detecting, oh, whoops, we are accidentally targeting something within us, and we're going to shut that down. What happens in autoimmune disease is that accident of autoantibody formation, an antibody that actually helps the immune system attack us is formed, and then the fail-safes fail. So the immune system doesn't recognize that it's doing something wrong. So it's accidentally going to target our tissues, and then it's not going to know that that's an accident, and then it's not going to be able to shut itself off. And so all it takes is for secondary or tertiary autoimmune disease is for another accident. And once the immune system has become dysfunctional to that level, um, you're just rolling a dice. It, it just becomes um, a probability. And in fact, it's it's an inevitability. Yeah. So this is like totally familiar to me. You know, it started with lichen sclerosis and eventually I got diagnosed with endometriosis and celiac disease as well. I mean, kept And you going. almost certainly had celiac first, right? Right. Exactly. I yeah. almost certainly had celiac disease first. If I think back to um, my teen years, I'm sure uh, the very beginnings probably started then. And it became very clear and very obvious after my daughter was born. You know, there comes the women's hormonal role, right? but it still was 11 more years before I was diagnosed. There are certain autoimmune diseases that have sort of been identified as being very, very common, what's called a primary autoimmune disease, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis and like celiac disease. Actually, those are probably the two most common, but they've been identified as having a very high frequency of leading to subsequent diseases. Um, Probably what happens is, I think there's two different things happening. With celiac disease, you're body is attacking the part of itself that is responsible for absorbing nutrients. So you end up becoming nutrient depleted and the immune system is this huge nutrient hog. It uses nutrient resources like no other system in the human body and it requires those nutrients predominantly for the function of restraining itself and turning itself off. So as soon as you become nutrient deficient, your immune system loses the ability to turn itself off and so it's going to continue in this attacking mode. So with celiac disease, that is probably one of the main reasons why other secondary tertiary autoimmune diseases are so common and they happen on average in a shorter time scale than some other ones. And with thyroid, it's a similar sort of situation in the sense that thyroid hormones feed into the immune system. They're actually a partial controller of how the immune system is working. And so when you have really high thyroid hormones being released, like in Graves' disease, or you have not enough being released as in Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you're losing your one major controller of how the immune system is functioning. So then you've got a situation where the immune system can be more easily turned on and more easily ramped up. And I think that's why those two diseases 
in particular tend to be first and tend to be associated with more conditions. So Sarah, I'm asking partially because I've got both Hashi's and celiac, Um, but also for everyone else, um, is there anything we can do to prevent this? You know, how do we stop from rolling the dice again? Pretty please tell me. (laughs) Yeah, actually, there's a tremendous amount. So we've got this genetic predisposition and we can't change your genes, unfortunately. But that's only one part of the equation. It's probably about a third of the equation. So there's two whole thirds of things that are determining how likely it is for us to develop an autoimmune disease that are not related to genetics. So that whole other two thirds is all stuff that we can control or mostly stuff that we can control. So a huge, huge, huge input is diet. And especially what's called nutrient status. Does our body have access to all of the nutrients it needs in the quantities that it needs? Basically, are we getting all the nutrition? Our bodies actually need to function optimally. And because, as I already mentioned, the immune system is such a nutrient hog, we really need to have a very nutrient-focused diet in order to provide the immune system what it needs to regulate itself. So that's where the autoimmune protocol comes in, is it's a very nutrient-focused diet. It does this other extra thing, which is, I think, even more powerful in the sense that it removes foods that are known to be inflammatory, and it removes foods that are known to negatively impact hormone regulation of hormones that are inputs to the immune system. And then it also is a diet that is geared to creating an optimal environment in the gut. So we know that the bacteria that are growing in our digestive tracts have a tremendous input into how our immune systems are working, um, include and a bunch of other things, right? They also control our hormones. They're controlling what neurotransmitters our brain is making. I mean, there, there's some pretty amazing things that we really only understand about 1% of. But a diet that is really, really rich in vegetable fibers and a variety of vegetable fibers and um, omega-3 fats is, is really a diet that is conducive to an optimal situation in the gut so that we have the right regulation signals coming from those bacteria for our immune system. So we focus on all of those things. But diet is, again, it's not the whole rest of the two-thirds. We know that sleep is profoundly important and that people who have sleep problems like insomnia are about 50% more likely to develop an autoimmune disease within a 10-year period compared to people who don't have sleep problems. So sleep is profoundly important. And we actually know that there are certain parts of the immune system that really only do their job while we're sleeping and tends to be that part of the immune system that's turning things off and shutting down, which we really want. If we have a genetic predisposition, that's going to mean we have this accident of creating antibodies that recognize our own bodies instead. We really, really want to do whatever we can to make sure the immune system can still retain the ability to turn itself off. So sleeping enough is a huge, huge input. Stress is a huge input because the hormones that are released in our body when we're under stress are also controllers of the immune system. And we know that when we're under stress, our immune systems are depleted. You know, when it comes to stress, the equation actually becomes less about reducing stress, although that's still part of it, and more about what's called increasing resilience. So it's incorporating things into your life that mitigate how the body is responding to stress. So you can still be stuck in that traffic jam and be late for work, but you're not freaking out. A huge part of this is just attitude, something that I think takes practice, but also doing things like getting enough sleep, 
Getting enough sleep is a huge input to how our bodies respond to stress. Having a nutrient-dense diet is a huge input to how our bodies respond to stress. But also having time in our life that's fun, having really close relationships and connections with people, having a good support network, spending time in nature, having time where your brain gets to shut down. So meditation or um, a meditative-like hobby. So that might be something like jigsaw puzzles um, or adult coloring books. So having something in your life where your brain gets a break and then also having something in your life where your brain gets stimulated. I mean, these are all things that can help reduce the negative impact of stress. There's certain things we just can't control. So what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that we control what we can. And one of the things that we can do is make sure that our body's responses to stress is, is appropriate to the level of stress. And I think the last thing is activity. So we know that being sedentary is inflammatory. So having a desk job and sitting all day and then coming home and making dinner and sitting in front of the TV on the couch, that is an inflammatory amount of movement, that lack of movement. Being sedentary actually dramatically increases risk for all chronic diseases because it stimulates inflammation. And it's something that we almost get forced into with our sort of current Western societies. You have to make a real effort to find movement throughout the day. You can't actually make up for sitting for eight hours at a desk job with two hard hours at the gym in the evening. What the science is actually showing us is that finding movement throughout the day, setting an alarm on your phone to go off every 20 minutes and standing up and stretching and maybe taking a little bit of a walk. So two minutes of gentle motion out of every 20 minutes during the day completely negates the health detriments of being sedentary. We really want to be active. We really want to embrace movement throughout the day. Having more muscle mass can be really tremendously beneficial. So doing some kind of activity where we're building muscle is very, very helpful for the immune system function. But incredibly strenuous exercise, like you might do if you're training for a marathon or, or you're a triathlete, the studies really come from marathoners, triathletes, and cyclists, we know that that actually can harm the immune system. And elite endurance athletes actually have a much higher risk of autoimmune disease because of how their training is negatively impacting their immune system. So there's this wonderful, happy medium with activity each person kind of needs to find. There's no like, if your heart rate is above this, don't do it. There's no like metric for what's too intense. So it requires a little bit of self-experimentation. But all of those inputs together are impacting how the immune system is working. And so for somebody who has the genetic susceptibility for autoimmune disease, the trick for putting a halt on the development of more, and for many people, it will allow our immune systems to regulate enough that our symptoms reduce. Some people will be able to put their autoimmune diseases into complete remission. The trick with that is this really multi-pronged approach with both diet and lifestyle focus to give our bodies the best opportunity to work the way they're supposed to. Love that, Sarah. I mean, everything you said is super in line with what we've been writing and researching. And I think people are going to find that super helpful. You know, this is a big issue for those of us that have autoimmune disease. We don't want any more. It is true that there is a lot we can do. That two-thirds makes up for a lot of things we can change to better help ourselves live healthier in the future. Kind of changing gears a little bit here, Sarah, what can people expect as far as testing and treatment for various autoimmune diseases, both kind of in the conventional uh, medicine realm and in natural approaches? 
I think it's really important for people to understand is there's not one test that can be done that will tell you if you have an autoimmune disease. And in fact, there are many autoimmune diseases in which they are diagnosed based purely on symptoms that there's no test that will say, yes, for sure you have this or yes, you don't. In that situation, you know, the really unfortunate thing is these has to progress point where the symptoms are so severe that the diagnosis is obvious. And that's a horrible situation to be in. So there are some tests, and certainly for some autoimmune diseases, there is a strict diagnostic criteria. But it can be incredibly frustrating to get a confirmed diagnosis. And there's many, many, many examples of people who go 20 or 30 years knowing that something's not right, being told that they're making it up, that they're attention-seeking or whatever it is, until they finally get a diagnosis and get an answer to everything. And it's such a frustrating and like soul eroding process to go through. And in fact, a huge percentage of people who are later diagnosed with serious autoimmune diseases are labeled as hypochondriacs when they first start trying to seek diagnosis. This is a whole separate problem. We feel terrible. We know something's wrong and people are telling us it's in our heads. And that's why informing ourselves can be so important. So having a look at symptoms, you know, there's usually a collection of autoimmune diseases in which those will kind of match. Blood tests are always going to be the, the starting place. So one of the most common blood tests is for anti-nuclear antibodies. You can have negative anti-nuclear antibodies and still have an autoimmune disease. But if you have positive ANA, you for sure got autoimmune disease. So then, you know, looking at if it's your thyroid, what are your thyroid hormones doing? If it's GI symptoms, then you'll probably get a colonoscopy or a gut biopsy to figure out if you've got ulcerative colitis or celiac disease. And here's one of the other frustrating parts about this. There's no such thing as an autoimmune specialist. Autoimmune diseases fall under the specialty of whatever organs attacked. So if you have thyroid disease, you'll see an endocrinologist. If you have celiac disease, you'll see a gastroenterologist. If you have multiple sclerosis, you'll see a neurologist. And so there's no like one type of doctor who is really like just looking for, okay, your immune system's attacking yourself. Let's, let's investigate that further. And that can make it also very frustrating. You're talking with somebody whose expertise is how the brain's working, and they have to know about a whole collection of different conditions. And so it can feel like their knowledge about autoimmune conditions that affect the brain is not enough to feel really helpful. And it's, it completely depends from specialist to specialist. And it's why so many people in this community now are combining a conventional medicine approach because there's still tremendous power in those diagnostic techniques and there's still tremendous power in a lot of the treatments that conventional medicine can offer. But then we combine that with a complementary medicine approach, an alternative medicine approach that is going to look at maybe some of the things that are causing your immune system to go haywire in the first place. And that, again, varies across the board. Functional medicine specialist and integrative medicine specialist, they will start having a look at nutrient deficiencies, co-infections that might be happening in your digestive tract. For example, like whether or not you have parasites, that can be a trigger of autoimmune disease. Um, they'll have a look at what your body's stress responses are. So they'll have a look at what your cortisol is doing. They'll have a look at maybe at hormones. They'll have a look at this much bigger picture. And we combine all of those things. We can take the, you know, the best of all worlds. So we can take these guidelines for diet and lifestyle factors that we know are going to give our immune system the best opportunity to regulate itself. And we combine that with a supplement-based approach 
that is catered to exactly what's going on in our bodies and potentially a, a medication, a pharmaceutical that is appropriate for what's going on in our bodies. And we can combine all of these things. But really the best advice that I can give someone for finding a practitioner to work with is to launch into a respectful and informed conversation. Asking questions rather than telling answers, I think, is a really important thing when you're working with a professional. You're seeking out a professional, which means that you want their help. So it's not your job to tell them what you have. It's your job to ask them what they think about your idea and really engaging in that conversation. And a healthcare professional that doesn't want to make time to have that conversation is probably not one that's going to be very easy to work with. Yeah, those of us with autoimmune disease, I mean, we really, we really can't handle the, you know, 10 or 15 minutes with, uh, with a doctor in conventional medicine. I mean, that's just not going to cut it with the kind of complications and extensive testing and, you know, the story that we all have. Yes. Knowing that somebody is going to listen to you, it's not just about yeah. them getting the full picture of information so that they can accurately diagnose you. It's also about this confidence and this bond and this feeling like this person is really on your side. That doesn't mean that every person with autoimmune disease needs to have that practitioner in order to be empowered to take control and in order to see tremendous healing from diet and lifestyle changes. But it is still a very wonderful thing when you can find that person, you know, to have that expert who also feels like a friend. And it's definitely worth taking some time to seek out. And it's also important to know that a lot of these practitioners will work online. So it doesn't even need to be somebody who lives in your town. Um, depending on their credentials, maybe they can work with you over you know, Skype or phone calls right from the very beginning. And having that extra little person in your corner who can say, okay, this is how far conventional medicine has brought you, or this is what we can know from the tests we've run so far. And then have that conversation with you of like, what's the next step is where you're an active participant in the plan. That's really the goal. I mean, it's so important to be empowered as an autoimmune disease sufferer because the deck is stacked against us. I mean, that's just what it is. And so to feel like you're just rolling with the punches is not a good emotional place from which to find healing. Feeling like the ball's in your court and, and you've got some power, that's where we can really start to see you know, positive changes, but also that's where informed choices come from. Hmm. And this is why we have been friends with this lady for going on <laughs> four years now, because it's like she is in our brain and she knows that this is totally our message and mission too. Yeah. Love it. Sarah, before we go, tell us one more thing. You know, you have this really amazing background in scientific research, and we're just wondering how this impacts the way that you research and develop protocols for those of us with autoimmune disease. So I am a complete nerd. Um, I can't turn it <laughs> we off. I know that. <laughs> Love it. For me, I eat, sleep, and breathe science. It's just programmed into me and has been since I was about seven years old when I decided I wanted to be a research scientist when I grew up. And so for me, there's this balance between I want to figure out what works for me and I want to explore and I want to tinker and I want to find optimal health. As, as much as I've come a million miles from where I started in this journey, it, I'm still on my journey. The healthier I get, the higher I set the bar. And then I want, I want a little bit more and I want a little bit more. And I think that's fine. I think that's part of this journey, right? It's steps. And as, as we see how much we can gain from making diet and lifestyle changes, 
then we want to know how much more we can gain. And so I definitely fall under that banner of somebody who has seen tremendous healing and is greedy and still wants more. For me, though, there's this importance of understanding what is optimal for me versus what is generally applicable. And that's where the science comes in. So I always want to understand why. Like, why do I feel so horrible when I have eggs? Like, for me, I want to understand what is it in eggs that's doing that to me? And how is my body reacting? And does this just happen to me? Or is this something that's happening to everybody, at least in in varying degrees, depending on our genetic susceptibility? So for me, I am constantly trying to find the answers to why something's a good choice, why something's not a good choice, what we know and also where the boundaries of our knowledge are, what holes in our knowledge do we still need a scientific paper to fill. And then I want to understand what is unique to me as an individual versus what is generally applicable to other people with you know similar conditions. It's important to not let what works or doesn't work for me personally jade my summary of what the best template here is because it doesn't matter what worked for me. What matters is what is going to be a good starting place that's going to work for everybody. It's trying to find that balance between understanding why and pulling together a framework from which most people can see healing without the extra mile of a practitioner and supplements and extra treatments for whatever gut dysbiosis or whatever it is. And so that's how I approached the autoimmune protocol. When I started following it myself, there was almost no information out there. There's just some lists of food to avoid. And it was my obsessive compulsive need to understand why these extra foods to avoid were suboptimal foods and then expand that information into what foods are really important to focus on and what other inputs are there to the immune system that I need to worry about. And it was that need to understand the scientific details and the general applicability of those things that drove me to, I I didn't create the autoimmune protocol, but I think what I did was I created the detail in it and I created the science-based rationale for that template. You know, I'm motivated to understand this because I have autoimmune disease, but it really just stems from the fact that I'm a huge nerd. Sarah, it's been awesome to talk with you today. I think that it's important for Mickey and I to reflect a little bit and think about where we were in the beginning, back in the way back of AIP, and how, you know, we were some of the first people in the whole country embarking on that protocol with all the detail that you had laid out and some of the first people to contact you and eventually write on your site for you and move forward with our lives in an incredible way because of what you laid out. It's amazing to see where this community is now. And I am really thankful. I want to say just how vital you two have been to this community because as much as I, you know, pulled together a few thousand scientific references to detail a protocol. What makes this approach accessible to people are people like you and the work that you guys have been doing, the amazing resources that you've poured your heart into creating and the dedication that you have to this community. And that's why this community is growing. And that's why we can go to a public event and have 
have people share their amazing inspirational stories of healing with us is because of your commitment to informing, educating, and creating the practical resources that people need to make the best choices day to day. Uh, Thanks. Tell us where people can find you online and what you're up to. So you can find everything and link to everything from www.thepaleomom.com. From there, you can link to my books, uh, my television show pilot, my social media sites, my podcast. I am working on another book that is penciled for release in February 2017. That will be another epic science-based tome similar to the Paleo Approach and very relevant to the autoimmune community, although not specific to autoimmune disease. Um, There'll be more announcements about that as we get closer to a completed book on my social media sites. And yeah, basically Home Central is thepaleomom.com. And from there, there's all kinds of great things. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. We love being in this mission with you, lady. Thanks for sharing. Digital high fives. Uh, Digital high fives. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. We're honored to have you as a listener, and we hope that you've gained some useful information. You can learn more about the topic we explored today. It's covered in detail in our book, The Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, along with handy self-assessments, checklists, and other useful resources to put your plan into action. Pick up a copy today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes as this helps others find us. You can also connect with us through our blog, autoimmune-paleo.com, and with the community by using the hashtag autoimmunewellness.